Take your Bible, turn to Psalm 115. Continuing some of these worship songs, a life of worship is our theme for the next few weeks. A life of worship, Psalm 115. As you turn there, I'd like to ask you to think about something. When does God feel invisible to you? We, we know that we cannot see our God. That's one of the first things you have to teach a child. That the God we worship is not a God you can touch. It's not a God you can feel. It's not a God you can see with your eyes. But there are certain times when God may feel extra invisible to you. You're going through a trial. You're going through a difficulty. And we know that we can't make images of God so we can have them in front of us to worship. We don't do that. One of the most fascinating lessons I learned recently about Old Testament, about idols, really, was when I was in, um, when I took our trip a couple of years ago to London, we went to the uh, museum there, the, the, the London, the, the English Museum, British Museum, and it's a fascinating world history museum, and in there they have idols from all over the Middle East, and I'd never seen one up close. I'd seen pictures of them. I'd always imagined them to be very large, where in fact, most of the idols they had on display from the Middle East were very small. They were about action figure size, so people could carry in their pocket. Something they could see and hold and touch. And, you know, we don't do that with our God. In fact, sometimes God can feel extra invisible to us. When things are difficult, when you're demoralized, God might feel very invisible. The setting for this psalm is is difficult for some folks to uh, figure out exactly. But when what we understand, it seems to that the most likely setting for Psalm 115 is that the nation of Israel historically has just returned from their exile to Babylon. We're talking in the 400s or so B.C. before Christ. We have the nation of Israel that is sent off in exile, and then God rescues them by bringing them back, and they're resettling the land. You remember the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah as they're trying to rebuild the temple. They're trying to rebuild the walls. They're doing everything they can to rebuild their city. And when they come into this land, they're not the only ones there. There are some folks who are people of the land who've lived there before, and, and they're idol worshipers. And, and here come the Jews back into their own land, and they're rebuilding that temple there in Jerusalem. And these folks who we see evidence of them in, in, in Ezra and Nehemiah mock the Jews. And they make fun of the Jews. In fact, I can imagine the kind of things that would come up 70 years since the nation of Israel has been there. And, and, these, and these Gentiles, these pagans, would see the Jews building their temple, and they say, oh, whose temple is this? What God is this temple for? And the Jews will say, it's for our Lord Yahweh. That's the name of our God. Oh, really? Where is he? I don't see him. Oh, you can't see Yahweh. Oh, is that true? And I can feel as you read this, you understand. If you understand that kind of a context, you say, well, our God is in heaven. He's invisible. The other pagans say, well, my God is right here. You can see my God. And and, and to us as enlightened 21st century people, the idea of having a carved idol to us seems so foolish, yet to people at that time, it was very, very logical. And to be quite frank, most of us have just replaced our little idols with different kinds of idols. We still worship our own little things we can see, touch, feel, smell, taste. But you have to understand that these Jews were standing up to antagonistically aggressive opponent, someone who hated them, hated what they stood for, and wanted to to do everything they could to make their life miserable. So simply asking you, when you're demoralized, when someone's making fun of you, when someone's mocking you, where do you turn? Where do you go? 
we find in Psalm 115 is these turn to worshiping the Lord. And I find in this passage a tremendously encouraging Scripture. It teaches us how we are to be worshiping the invisible God. You'll find an outline inside your bulletin. I hope you'll join in with me in prayer as we begin our service this morning. Father, we ask as we have been singing to you and we have been exalting you, we ask as we come before you now that the power of the Spirit would be in our lives and in you, through your word we would be transformed. That our thinking and our behavior would change because of what you've told us this morning. Lord, this urgent message from Psalm 115 is something we all need today. Something we all need before we leave this room to apply inside of our hearts. Lord, may we grasp it. May we embrace it. Hold fast to your truth. Because our, your truth is what gives us life. And so today, Father, give us light into your truth. Help us understand it and believe it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We see here, as you notice on your bulletin, we first are going to see the right attitude about or of our worship. Verses 1 and 2, the psalm begins. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory. Because of your mercy, because of your truth. Why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? There are several aspects or attributes of correct worship attitude here. There are several elements, I should say, of the right attitude of our worship. The first aspect of this is that our worship must be self-aware. We have to understand where we stand in this. Remember the context of this rebuilding of the temple. They are preparing a place with the stated goal that this is not for their glory. This is not to be impressive to people. Say, wow, look at the craftsmanship of these Jewish Builders, look at the amazing skill of these people to put together this joint in this building. Look at the beauty of this altar. No, he says, not to us. Not to us. They're coming with the right attitude. And so the words, not to us, occur twice in the first line. And they're in between those two is the phrase, O Lord, or the name of God, Yahweh. Not to us, Yahweh. Not to us. Don't be mistaken. This is not for us. It's not to us. Everything we do could be started with this psalm right here. In fact, every day we wake up could start with the first line of this psalm. Not to us, O Lord. Not to us, but to your name we give glory. We are not to to have an attitude of worship that is self-centered. We are instead to be self-aware. This is not for us. This is for him. In fact, these first two subpoints go together because we should not seek the glory God deserves. We should not make worship about us, about our feelings. We should not make worship about accomplishing our priorities. Like, what was your agenda coming here this morning? Your agenda should not really matter. It's God's agenda that matters. We come not for our own glory, but for His. Because the second aspect is that not only is it self-aware, but this attitude must be God-exalting. He says, not to us, O Lord, but to your name. Your name, the name of the Lord is not just what we call him. It's not just the name that you might reference him. The name in the Bible always establishes a character or the reputation of someone. As the proverb says, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. He's not saying if you have a good name like John or Peter or Paul, that that's a good name. Yes, I'd rather have that than a name like Marshall or John, you know, Josh or, or whatever. No, no, no. He's saying that a good name, a good reputation is to be desired more than great riches. And here, not to us, but to your name, we're giving glory, we're lifting up, we're giving praise to the reputation of God. And that word glory, 
It's such a fascinating word. The word glory is the word Hebrew word kavod, which means heaviness. And it means weightiness. I mean, think about it. Today, if you go pay for like if you go pay for a car, let's say you bought a car outright, you went to the lot and you had enough money to just write a check. And you wrote that check and you handed it over. I mean, you think about that. That's just a little piece of paper. But back in the ancient days, if you were going to pay for something, let's say you went and bought your chariot. All right. You had to buy your chariot, you know, make sure you upgrade the wheels, make sure you get the nice, you know, cup holder right on the inside. And so you're getting your chariot all fixed up and you go to, to, to purchase that chariot. And the dealer says, okay, just for the special deal, uh, if you pay all cash, it's special. Okay, I'll do that. And so for you to pay all cash for your chariot back in the ancient days, you could not hand a piece of paper over. What would you have to do? You'd have to go get your gold. And that would be, that would be quite a, 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 a bag of gold. And you would carry that heavy wealth and you would deposit that heaviness over the idea of, of of glory is not just shining and bright it's actually the idea of of weightiness of heaviness of substance you've all you've all picked up your christmas gifts right and rattle them around under the tree well the adults don't admit they do that anymore but the kids sure have and you always get to that one gift and it's like this big or so and you pick it up and you're like oh ooh, that's got some heft to it that's the same idea behind the word glory that we're glorifying God. There is heft there. There is seriousness there. There is something valuable there. We are giving glory, giving weight to the name of our God. And so when we give glory to God, our worship must be God centered. Does your worship make much of God or does it make little of God? Does your worship make much of your Lord? How does your worship demonstrate that you make much of God? Or is it the opposite? That your worship makes a lot of people and not a lot of God. You, you make a really great people and a small God. When you come into the house of God, what is on your mind? I think a lot of Christians, they walk into the house and say, to me, to me be glory, Lord. Not to you, to me. Let it be all about me. Let it be all about me. If that pastor doesn't say something that I can take out of here and apply in my life right now, hey, it's all about me. Hey, if I don't find a friend this week, oh, it's all about me. And, and we lose track of the sight that it's not about us. It's, it, we've got to be self-aware. We've got to be God-exalting. And we must be truth-centered. Notice the attitude and also the content of what he's saying. What can we glorify God for? What are we worshiping God about? Two traits are given to us. First, because of his mercy. Depending on your translation, there are several different ways to translate this word said which is the word loving kindness, covenant love, steadfast love, his mercies, loving all those different translations mean God's promised love and commitment to us. God's covenantal commitments. If you're married, you made a covenant at an altar before people, before God. That covenant is a promise that involves obligations and responsibilities, but also blessing. And God's covenant, we talked about this last week, is here faithfully carried out by God. His mercies deserve praise, but also his faithfulness. That word truth is the word I met, which can mean faithfulness. It can mean something that is continually consistent, trustworthy, constant, lasting a very long time. And notice here, as he finishes out this, he says in verse two, because, or because in verse one, because of your mercy, because of your truth, this text is speaking not to us anymore, but to God. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, because of your mercy, 
because of your truth. We're speaking directly to God. We're telling him why we are worshiping him. Worship, and the right attitude, must be self-aware, God-exalting, truth-centered, and it must be able to stand up under mockery. You see verse 2 lets us in on the mockery that's happening to these people as they are giving the psalm. They turn, they say, Lord, we're all about worshiping you, but why, why, why do the Gentiles say this? Where is your God? They're, they're speaking literally here, like, where is he on the map? Where is he in your house? I don't see your God. There's a mockery, and they think that their mockery is clever. Those who don't believe God, those who surround the Jewish nation, they laugh at them. They have this one line of attack. I can see my God. Where's your God? You talk about your God. I don't see him. They mock these God-fearing Yahweh worshipers by pointing to their idols, to their high places, to their temples. You can almost hear the jesting in their voices. They say, about that God of yours, too bad you don't know what he looks like. You could maybe pray to him a little bit better. There's a lot of jesting here. And we know that historically before the, the exile, so before they went to Babylon and were sent into exile, as we read our Bible, we see that the Jews struggled with idolatry a lot. I mean, even look at the book of Hosea. You see the story there of God telling Hosea to go and marry a prostitute and have children with her to represent the fact that as God has the people of Israel, they go constantly into spiritual adultery. So his wife has gone constantly into adultery. What a picture of idolatry there of spiritual adultery. And this was a huge problem for the nation of Israel, but they learn their lesson and coming back from exile, they are firm in their commitment to reject idolatry. We, we will not worship other gods. They say they recognize their idolatry was part of what sent them into exile. That will not happen again. So here, the ones who are called Gentiles, not the ones who fear God, they think their mockery is a valid criticism. But if we're going to engage in God-exalting, truth-centered, self-aware worship, we should expect that we too will be mocked by those who don't fear God. You should expect that someone along the way will mock you, but you should not allow these words of mockery to be unmet. I think this is a problem that a lot of Christians have, have felt. That people mock us, and what do we do? We just don't know what to say. We, we don't meet their mockery with anything. We don't have anything to respond. And I think a lot of us just don't know how to respond. How do we respond about an invisible God? What would you say? Remember the story of Goliath and David. We've been talking about how to read Old Testament stories on Wednesday night. It's been a lot of fun. And I've referenced Goliath and Dave, David and Goliath quite a few times. But what was the thing that drove David to respond? There is Goliath out in the fields. And what's he doing? He's mocking God. And he's mocking God's people. And he's mocking the Jews. He's mocking God. And, and David says, how can you allow this mocker to speak without being challenged? And so we need to remind ourselves of why we should worship this God. In fact, this next bit shows us a proper response, the right perspective that is about who it is we worship. Would you look with me in verses 3 through 8? Let's read this whole section, then we'll come back and see what it has to say. We serve a different kind of God, he says. But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have ear, eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they don't handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. 
And those who make them are like them, so is everyone who trusts in them. We have the right perspective about who we worship. We know how to respond. First, we see that he is the omnipotent God. We see this in verse 3. That his place is different. He is in heaven. They are on earth. You cannot see him and touch him with your hands. They're gods you can touch, you can experience here on earth. He is the God of heaven. Our God is in heaven. And his power is different. He does whatever he pleases. You know, he isn't limited. The pagan gods, they're limited. In fact, they're often at war with one another. You have this god of the this and this god of the that and that goddess of this. And they're often um, competing with one another and bickering with one another. They're just like people in their minds. And, and he says, our God is not like that. Our God does whatever he pleases. He is omnipotent and they are impotent. You have an omnipotent God and impotent idols. The word idols comes from the root word meaning to shape or to fashion. And that there is a creative exercise that God actually engaged in when he made mankind. In Job chapter 10, this word is used to describe how God made man. Job 10.8. But here, these people have decided that they are going to fashion idols for themselves after their image. Sound familiar? In fact, these idols are created idols. They are created idols. They are idols, verse 4, are of silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They're constructed by valuable materials, things we value. Like if you had a silver idol in your house, it would be something to look at, to admire, to say, wow, that's impressive. I made that. Have friends over. Come see my collection. This is from last year. This is from this year. Have you seen the improvement? Wow, I'm so good. There is this exaltation of the self. They are valued, but at their core, they're just metal. At their core, they're nothing. They're made by people. They're the works of men's hands, and they are impotent. I, in fact, start to list this. He says they have mouths, but they can't speak. Look at this list. They have the shape of a mouth. You carve that idol and you make him have a mouth, but he'll never talk to you. He will never speak truth to you. But our God is the God who speaks from the very beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Then God said, let there be light. The first thing God does is he speaks And in fact, the whole scripture is filled with thus says the Lord. One of the key identifiers of our God is he's a God who speaks versus the idols who can't. They have the shape of a mouth. It looks like they could speak, but of course they cannot. They have eyes, but they can't watch over you. You carve the eyes, but they will never guard you. They will never see when you are in trouble. They cannot prevent Anything from happening to you. They are impotent. Even though they have eyes, it looks like they can't. They can't do anything. But Second Chronicles 16.9 says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. God sees everything. Our God knows and sees. They, they have ears, but they will never hear your prayers. You shape that ear. 
You dig that ear out, yet the shape of the ears mean that God will never, or these, these gods will never hear your prayers. You might as well pray to the dirt or to a brick wall. These gods will never hear you. But our ear, the God of, we serve, Psalm 34, 15, the ears of the Lord are open to their cry. God's ears are open. God hears. They have noses, but they do not smell. They will never smell the offerings that are being offered to them. I've never been to a place like India or Myanmar, but I've heard in many of these countries, there are many little shrines with idols and incense. And burning there is incense before idols. And people do this as, as worship. But the scripture points out that no matter how much incense you burn, that idol will never, ever, ever smell your offering. That idol is something you made. He has noses, but he cannot smell where our God is one who receives the offerings of the people. They have hands, but they are powerless to reach out. They are powerless to assist you, to hold you up. They are powerless to strike your enemy, to defend you. They are powerless to pull you out of the miry clay and set your feet on a rock. Their feet and their hands, I should say, are stiff with no joints, no muscles. They cannot move their arms, but our God has a powerful hand. He has a powerful arm and his spirit, because he's spirit, God says that his arm is not short. His hand cannot be stayed. He has all the power he needs. In fact, in 1 Samuel 5.11, it says that the hand of God was heavy there. In fact, the hand of God in the Bible is mostly associated with the judgment of God. That the hand of God was upon them is not necessarily always a good thing. God's hand was heavy. God's judging hand. Yet that idol cannot judge you. They have feet, but they'll never guide you. They'll never follow you. They cannot chase you and chasten you when you run away from them. They are fixed to one place. But our God chases people. He chases the prophet Jonah as he runs away from God and does not want to go obey. And God chases him into the pit of that ship and turns him around by use of miraculous fish and dumps him out to go to Nineveh. You think about what God accomplishes in chastening you when you run away from God. Every one of you who ever had a time when you have run away from God, when you have spent time, whether it's weeks, months, or years, running away from our Lord, you know the hound of heaven that has chased you and made it miserable for you and chastened and disciplined you along the way. These idols can't do that. They have no feet. And they can't mutter with their throat. That is, they won't call. They won't sing. The picture here is that they won't ever rejoice over you. But our God in Zephaniah 3.17 says He will rejoice over you with singing. And in Isaiah 62 verse 5, God will rejoice over you as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. God rejoices. Have it ever occurred to you that God sings songs about you? That God rejoices over those who are saved? It's astonishing to think the God of heaven loves you so much that he's up there singing songs about you. The Bible teaches that. And yet these idols will never mutter even with their mouth. These idols are impotent. And the greatest problem with idol worship is that it reverses the relationship between God and man. Rather than God being our creator, the idol creator turns into the creator and he determines the kind of God that he wants give you two examples. Go back with me to 1 Samuel 5 first for a second. Turn with me in your Bible, 1 Samuel 5. 
1 Samuel chapter 5. In 1 Samuel 5, it tells a story, the nation of Israel, who has experienced defeat. And so they think that their way, the way to resolve their defeat, the way to, to answer this, is to, is to bring the Ark of the Covenant into battle. They do that like a good luck charm. They'll surely win. It says, and the Philistines took the Ark of God. Oh, no. See, the Philistines still beat them. And in defeating them, they take God's Ark and capture it. Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And when the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. That is a God. What we believe was probably a fish man God. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left on it. Therefore, neither the priest of Dagon nor those who came into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. There, the people who worship this false god walk in and see their god is fallen down before the ark of the covenant. And what do they have to do? They have to pick it up and put it back. Let me ask you a question. Who's in charge? Let me throw one more passage, and that is back to the book of Judges. Just a few pages back to the book of Judges, chapter 6. Judges, chapter 6, starting in verse 25. We see the story of Gideon here. Here we saw, previously we saw how these false gods cannot stand to the true God. They're not even of the same kind. And then in verse 25 of Judges chapter 6. Now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull, second bull of seven years, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has. And cut down the wooden image that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement. And take the second bull and offer a burnt off sacrifice in the wood of the image which you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. And because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much, he did it at night. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal, torn down in the wooden image that was beside it, cut down in the second bull that was being offered on the altar which had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And when they inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. And the men of city said to Joash, bring your son that he may die because he has torn down the altar of Baal and because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. Notice what happens next. Joash said to all who stood against him, would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death this morning. If he is a God, let him plead for himself. The, what he's saying is, is, hey, if this God is so strong, let him defend himself. We don't have to do anything for this God. But they all knew in their heart of hearts that their God was impotent. Baal could do nothing. Baal could do nothing because he was not a real God. The real danger, though, if you turn back with me to Psalm 115, as we've seen the impotence 
of false gods. Psalm 115, I believe one of the most real dangers for us as Christians today, if we are to fall into idol worship, is that there is a danger of worthless worship. One of the most searing indictments against those who would worship false gods. He says, those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. The ones who make these idols end up being like them. They completely end up being powerless, foolish, an image of the thing without any power. Those who make idols become blind, deaf, dumb, and incapable of doing what they ought because they are paralyzed with false worship. They cannot see. They cannot hear. They cannot speak. Isn't it amazing that when Christ came to heal, He healed the blind, the deaf, the dumb, and the lame. Christ came to heal those who could not move. And I think there's a lot of spiritual significance behind His choice to heal those sicknesses. So what is the right expectation from our worship? The right expectations from our worship begin first in letter here, letter A. Your position is that you should, no matter your position, you must trust God. He says in verses 9 through 11, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The house of Israel, Israel, the nation calls to them, trust in the Lord. Why? Because he's your help. He's the one who assists you. He is your protection, your shield. Then he calls to two other groups, the house of Aaron. He calls to the house of Aaron and also to those who fear the Lord. All people, no matter your position, whether you're of Israel, of this special group of priests, or just you fear God, trust in the Lord. That is the call. These other idols, don't trust them. Trust in the Lord. No matter your position, you trust in the Lord, you will be blessed by God. Why should you trust in him? He is their help. And their shield, verse 12 and 13, tell us that God thinks about you. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He'll bless the house of Israel, bless the house of Aaron, and bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. Look at that last line first. God will bless the small and the great. No matter your position, God will bless you. doesn't matter where you are on the rankings. If you're a general in the military, if you're a private in the military, if you are a person in the who, who is a CEO or you mop floors, it does not matter. God can bless you if you fear the Lord because he's mindful of you. He will bless you. He will consider you. He will bless you no matter your position. And he furthers the blessing in verses 14 and 15, telling you that he will give you increase more and more. You and your children, you'll be blessed by the Lord you, who made heaven and earth. The God who created all things will give you so much blessing. It will not only be for you, your cup will overflow to your children and your grandchildren. What an amazing God we serve. This is the right expectations from our worship. Trust God and he will bless you. Trust God and he will bless you. And what, lastly, is the future of our worship? What we see here as we begin in verse 16, our current responsibility. He says the heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the children of men. Do you realize that heavens belong to God? We can't go there now, but God has given us a realm where we may worship him right here on earth. He's given us this earth to worship him. He has given us this place to worship him. In fact, he has delegated dominion and responsibility to us. And it's your job as a Christian. It's your job as a man and as a woman to make your life centered around worshiping God here on earth. While you are here, he has given you that job. 
He has delegated that responsibility to you. He has given you this place, but this place is not all that we have because there is also a future opportunity. He says, the dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down in silence, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Some, like those who worship idols, will not praise God. They will go down in silence. Their death is a death of silence. Their worship will be muted. Death is a disconnection from God. The dead who do not praise God, they cannot praise God because they're disconnected from God. He's speaking not here of anyone who dies, but specifically of those who are spiritually disconnected from God, spiritually dead. They cannot praise God because he contrasts that in the next phrase with us. He says, they'll fail. And their praise has a time limit on it. But guess what? We have a future opportunity to praise. Our praise, verse 18, we will bless the Lord from now unto forever. And forever goes beyond the date of our death. That's why when you read the book of Revelation, the scenes of heaven are worship scenes. People are worshiping God. And our worship can be a song of eternal praise. Think about that. Our our song of eternal praise. And what is that eternal praise all about? It is the one word praise. Hallelujah. Our spiritful praise. As he closes out the psalm, he says, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Now, what do you do when God feels invisible? We've got to evaluate our attitude, our perspective, our expectations from our work of worship of the Lord. You've got to be self-aware, God-exalting, truth-centered. Remember that you worship an omnipotent God while everything else that is worshipped is simply an impotent idol. And as you worship Christ, you become more and more conformed to the image of His Son. But if you worship false gods, you will become more and more impotent in your life. And one of the reasons our invisible God did not want us trying to make images of Him was because the time would come when he would provide an image for himself. And in Colossians chapter 1, we're told that Christ is the image of the invisible God. Think about this. God says no idols. No idols. He's not talking about just idols of false gods. He's also talking about idols of himself. Pictures of himself. Because he would provide the perfect picture, the perfect icon, the perfect image. And that image is in Christ. And we see this throughout in First in John chapter 1. The word Christ, the Son of God, the eternal Son, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is on the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Christ, the Son of God, eternal, became visible. Can you grasp the magnitude of the eternal, invisible, immortal God becoming mortal, visible. It is mind-blowing. We're talking about the Son of God taking on human flesh, fully God, fully man, living and dying and rising again to paying for our sins and to unite us with God. We see this in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus, the humility of Him. Being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, meaning that he was in every way God, yet he did not consider equality with God something to be held onto or grasped, verse 7, but he made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself and taking on the form of a slave and coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself 
and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, not to us, but to your name. Give glory, Lord, so that the name of, of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and under the earth. Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We worship an invisible God made visible. We worship Christ, the one who came in the flesh, not only to live a perfect life, but to die for us. When you recognize that they have ears, but no, no hearing, eyes, but no seeing, mouths, but no speaking, our Christ came perfectly to die for us so that we, through faith in him, might have salvation and might worship him. What an amazing God we serve. Can you, can you today just say, thank you, Lord, for being the God who loved me that much. The invisible God, worshiping an invisible God is not hard. We serve a God is in the heavens, and he has done so much for us. Today, when you are confronted, or this year, or whatever, when in your life, when you're confronted with someone who mocks you like the Jews did, and you're at a place where you're facing an aggressively antagonistic opponent and the pressure from outside groups and you feel demoralized, you can turn to those who worship false gods and remind them that you worship the creator of the world who loved you so much he sent his son to die for you so that by faith we can have peace with him.